And I am pleased to invite the Reverend Glenn Clary to the pulpit to read and preach God's word for us. Uh, For those of you who were not at the conference, Reverend Clary is a minister at Providence OPC in Pflugerville, Texas, so in our presbytery, and we are pleased uh, that he is able to bring us God's word this morning. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us hear the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray together. We praise you, O Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, which are inspired by you and therefore profitable for us, which reveal to us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit this morning, you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand and believe what scripture teaches us about him. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the text that we have read this morning is an important text for understanding what scripture teaches us about the Sabbath. And I imagine that whenever we hear the word Sabbath, we usually think of a particular day of the week. And if we are talking about the Old Testament, we think of Saturday in particular, the seventh day of the week. And so we associate the word Sabbath primarily with a day of the week. And to be sure, the word Sabbath is certainly used that way in Holy Scripture. But the word Sabbath has a much deeper meaning than that. It's not just a synonym for the seventh day of the week. The word Sabbath is connected to the idea of rest. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, where we are told in Genesis 2-2 that God rested from all his works on the seventh day. After finishing his work of creation, God rested from all his works And so from the very beginning, the word Sabbath has been associated with the idea of rest, and specifically God's rest, first and foremost, 
And then secondarily, man's rest in imitation of God as the image of God. And throughout Holy Scripture, the word Sabbath conveys the idea of a state of rest and also of a place of rest. And the latter idea is particularly how the word is being used here in Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath refers to a place of rest. And so it has a spatial connotation. It is a place of rest that one can enter into like one would enter into a building. It has a spatial connotation as well as a temporal one. It refers to a place of rest as well as a period of rest. And so the author of Hebrews says here, for example, in chapter 4, verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God is something that we can enter into, and indeed it is something that we must strive to enter into. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, what's he talking about there at the end of verse 11 when he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience? Well, if we were to go back and read uh, Hebrews chapter 3, we would see that he's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness who failed to enter the land of promise, Canaan. Because of their unbelief, the Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness. And as a result of that rebellion, God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They were unable to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. They were unable to enter God's rest because of their unbelief, which led to their disobedience, their rebellion. And so the promised land is associated with God's rest. And to enter that land is to enter God's rest. And the reason the land of promise was associated with the rest of God is that it was the earthly dwelling place of God. God chose the land of Canaan as his home. He made it his dwelling place. And it's where his temple would eventually be built on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And that earthly temple was his dwelling place, his resting place. His dwelling place is his resting place. And so to enter the promised land in which God rested in his earthly temple was to enter God's rest. But the first generation of Israelites in the wilderness all died in the wilderness. They did not enter God's rest. Because of their unbelief, God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So God did not allow that generation to enter Canaan, with the exception, of course, of Joshua and Caleb, who did believe the word of God and who did enter the promised land. And so the author of Hebrews sees that historical event as parallel to the situation of his readers. It is parallel to the situation of the church in his day, and it's parallel to the situation of us. It's parallel to the situation of the church today. The author of Hebrews envisions the church as being in that same situation as the Israelites who were brought out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery, and brought into the wilderness. The church is currently in 
the wilderness on a journey towards the land of promise, which is the place of God's Sabbath rest. And he doesn't mean here the earthly land of promise, but the heavenly one. It's not God's earthly dwelling place, it's his heavenly dwelling place. That's where we are headed. We are pilgrims on a journey toward God's promised land, the heavenly land of rest. We are on a journey through the wilderness, on our way to God's heavenly temple, God's heavenly home. And we must not follow the example of the Israelites in the wilderness who failed to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. And so the author says here in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, the promise of entering God's rest, his place of rest, his heavenly dwelling place, while that promise still stands or remains open for us, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, the Israelites in the wilderness, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they did not receive it in faith. They did not believe it. So the word they heard from God telling them the good news about the promised land, the place of God's rest, did not benefit them. It was of no value to them. It was of no profit to them because they did not believe the word of God. They hardened their hearts in unbelief, and as a result, they failed to reach the place of God's rest. And the author of Hebrews warns us not to follow their negative example, but he urges us rather to strive to enter God's rest. Again, verse 11 of Hebrews 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same sort of disobedience of the Israelites in the wilderness who because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion, failed to enter God's rest. They fell short of entering God's rest because of that. Now, the instruction in verse 11 that we are to strive to enter God's rest might sound a bit odd to us. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. One might think that the way to enter rest is to not strive, to cease from striving. How can you strive to enter rest? And in fact, the word strive here means to work. It means to work hard, to labor, to press forward and strive to attain something. So it seems odd to say that we are to strive to enter into rest, but it fits with the idea that the place of rest is at the end of our journey. We're not there yet. We are not in the place of rest. It lies ahead of us. It is entirely in our future. It's at the end of our journey. We haven't entered it, and we have to press ahead. We have to move forward. We have to endure the journey and persevere until we arrive at that place of rest. And so the idea is that we are in the wilderness. We are currently in the wilderness. The church is in the wilderness on its way to that heavenly place of rest. We are on our way to the promised land, God's dwelling place, not his earthly home, but his heavenly home. And the temptation that we face is to turn back to Egypt and not to press forward and move ahead until we reach the promised land. Now, that was certainly the temptation that the original readers of the book of Hebrews were facing. They were being tempted to fall away, to turn away from Christ, and more specifically, they were being tempted to turn back to Judaism. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were facing a crisis of faith, and they were tempted to leave the faith and to return to Judaism. And so that's why 
throughout the book of Hebrews, you have all of these warnings, these very severe warnings not to fall away, not to turn back, not to fall away from Christ. And the author repeatedly warns them not to do that, but rather to persevere in their faith and not to lose heart. Now, one place where he exhorts them to persevere and to finish the race is in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, he says to them, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so he exhorts them not to grow weary, not to grow faint-hearted, but to finish the race, to run the race with endurance, the race that is set before them. And the key to that endurance is to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus who has already finished the race. Christ has already finished the journey, and he has already entered into God's rest. Jesus has entered God's heavenly throne room, and he shares God's rest. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that exhortation to persevere, to run with endurance, to endure, to persevere and finish the race, that exhortation is very important for our understanding of the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. Chapter 4, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, what exactly is that Sabbath rest that remains for us? And what does it mean to enter into God's rest? Well, entering God's rest is what Christ did after finishing his work. After finishing his work of redemption, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the promise of entering God's rest that remains open to us is what Christ himself received. It's what Christ himself obtained in his resurrection from the dead and his glorification. What does the Sabbath rest look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the Sabbath rest. That's the place of rest, the throne room of God in heaven. And that's the state of rest, being seated at the right hand of God. That's the place of rest and the state of rest that Christ himself entered after he finished his work. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's his work. That's the climax of his work, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the author of Hebrews repeats that same idea various places throughout the letter. He says, for example, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that after making purification for sins, that's his work, which he completed, after completing that work, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his rest. He finished his work and rested. 
Again, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, and therefore their work is never finished. Their work is never completed. But when Christ, he said, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that's his work, that's the climax of his work, he sat down at the right hand of God, that's his rest. So Christ finished his work, he finished the mission that God gave him to do, and then he entered into God's rest. He worked and rested. He worked and rested. Now that sequence is very important, work and rest. Christ, as the new Adam, the second Adam, entered God's rest, which is the rest that God himself entered after completing his work of creation. Genesis chapter 2, which we heard earlier in verse 1, says the following, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. God finished his work. He created the heavens and the earth, the invisible heavens and the visible earth, which he created to be his dwelling place, his resting place. His dwelling place is his resting place. He created heaven as his throne and earth as his footstool. And on the seventh day, Genesis 2, verse 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. His dwelling place became his resting place. And so God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, what exactly does it mean that God rested? Well, it means that having completed his work of creation, he ruled and reigned over that creation from his throne in the highest heavens, his resting place. The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. Now, that's the rest that Christ also entered after completing his work. After he made purification for sins, after he offered himself as a sacrifice, for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He ascended into that highest heaven, the invisible heaven, where God is enthroned. His throne is in heaven. And there he sat down, enthroned at the right hand of God. He entered God's resting place. He entered God's rest. He shared God's rest. He shared God's eternal Sabbath as the second Adam. So just as God completed his work and entered his rest, so too Christ, as that new Adam, completed his work and entered his rest. Christ, as the image of God, imitated God. He finished his work and rested. That's what Adam the first was supposed to do. He was supposed to imitate God by completing the work that God gave him to do, the mandate, the commission that God gave him to do. And if he completed that work, he would rest after he finished it. Adam, of course, failed to attain that rest by his disobedience. But the second Adam attained it by his obedience, his perfect, personal, entire obedience to God. And what Christ attained by his work is offered to us, who are followers of Christ, those who are united to Christ through faith, what Christ attained by his work is offered to us freely by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What Christ obtained, his enthronement in the highest heavens at the right hand of the Father, is that Sabbath rest that remains for us. It's the Sabbath rest that remains open for us. It's the rest that God himself entered after finishing his work of creation and the rest that Christ also entered after finishing his work of redemption. And it's the rest that is promised to us. Now, I think that helps us to understand the original meaning of the Sabbath rest in Genesis chapter 2 and also the original significance of the weekly Sabbath that was instituted for man in Genesis 2 verse 3. God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God made the Sabbath for man, and he gave it to man as a weekly ordinance to be observed by man. And that weekly Sabbath given to man was an earthly sign of that heavenly Sabbath rest that God himself entered after finishing his work. God rested in the sense that having finished his work, he sat down on his throne in the invisible heavens and he rested. And he gave man the weekly Sabbath as a sign of what he could enter and what he would enter if he successfully completed his probationary work. And the specific probationary command that God gave him was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had Adam passed that test, he would have received eternal life. He would have been glorified. He would have passed from an earthly mode of existence into a heavenly mode of enthronement the right hand of God in heaven. Now, how do we know that? We know that because that's what Christ, the new Adam, received by his obedience. What the first Adam forfeited by his disobedience, the second Adam received by his obedience. And what did he receive? He received that Sabbath rest that was promised to the first Adam on condition of his perfect, entire, exact, and personal obedience. That's the probationary test given to the first Adam. The first Adam failed that test. The second Adam passed it and received the promised reward. He entered that eternal Sabbath rest in heaven. And that rest remains for us and is promised to us, not on the condition of works, but on the condition of faith alone. It's not on the condition of works because Christ has finished the work. He completed it. He has finished it and has finished it for us. Again, Hebrews 4 and 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We strive to enter that rest not by works, but by faith, by holding fast to Christ in faith, our Savior. Strive to enter means to run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer of our faith, and he is also its perfecter. He's the one who is going to bring it to perfection. He will bring it to completion. And so the ability to finish the race, the ability to strive to enter the rest, to run the race with endurance, is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of persevering faith from the pioneer, and perfecter of our faith. Let us therefore strive not by works, but by faith in Christ alone to enter God's rest. 
to attain the resurrection, life, and glory that Christ himself has already attained in his resurrection from the dead. Now, what does all of that have to do with the Lord's Day? And that's what this sermon is primarily about, the Lord's Day. Well, the simple, simple answer is that the Lord's Day exists because we have not entered God's rest. The Lord's Day exists because we have not entered God's rest yet. Christ entered it, and by entering it, he has secured it for us. He has infallibly secured it for us but we have not attained it yet. And that's why the author says that the Sabbath rest remains open for us and that we are to strive to enter into it. And so the Lord's Day exists because we have not yet entered it. We are still in the wilderness. We are not in the place of rest. We are in the wilderness. We are not in God's heavenly dwelling place. So the journey, our journey there is incomplete. It's unfinished. And we must therefore press ahead. We must strive, run with endurance, the race that is set before us. And the Lord's Day reminds us that we are not there. It reminds us that we are in the wilderness. But it also reminds us that we don't belong here. We don't belong in the wilderness. It reminds us that we are strangers and aliens living in exile here on earth in the wilderness. And we are on our way to the promised land. We are on our way to that land of rest, Jerusalem the Golden. And the Lord's Day reminds us that that's our homeland. That's the end of our journey. That's where we are headed. We are on our way to that heavenly place of rest. And worship on the Lord's Day, which we do every week, worship on the Lord's Day orients our life toward our heavenly home. It orients our life away from the things of earth, the temporal things of this earth toward the eternal heavenly things that Christ has secured for us. And on the Lord's day, God calls us to come before him. God calls us to worship him. He calls us to enter his presence. He calls us to enter his dwelling place, his resting place, his heavenly temple, his throne room in the highest heavens where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that call to worship that we hear every single Lord's Day is a summons to run with endurance the race that is set before us and to strive by faith in Christ to enter that heavenly rest. And so the Lord's Day itself exhorts us to persevere. The Lord's Day itself as an ordinance that continu continues until we are there, the Lord's Day itself exhorts us to press ahead, to keep moving forward and not turn back. Because this world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens living in exile here. And we are seeking a homeland. And so the Lord's Day is the most important day of the week. It is the high point of the week because it reminds us that we don't belong here. That we are in the wilderness. That we are on the way to that heavenly land of rest. The Lord's Day is also on the first day of the week because we do not strive to enter God's rest by works, but by faith in Christ alone. Before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Sabbath day was on the seventh day. And that's very important, that sequence, because work preceded rest. Work first, then rest. Rest followed works. It followed works. 
And that sequence of rest following works signifies that it is obtained by works. But Christ has now finished that work. He has done it all. He has secured it for us infallibly. He has done everything that is necessary to secure that rest for us. It is finished. And he has sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. And so, friends, we do not worship on the seventh day after we have worked six days, but on the first day because we do not enter God's rest by works, but we enter it by faith in Christ alone who has finished the work. Richard Gaffin put it this way, worshiping on the first day of the week instead of the Sabbath, instead of the seventh day of the week, indicates that the goal of creation is now certain. It is no longer a matter of probation. It is certain. It is secured. It is finished. The probation has been passed. And so we worship on the first day of the week because that's the day that Christ himself actually entered God's heavenly rest. Worship on Sunday, then, is a confession of faith. To gather on Sunday, to gather on the Lord's Day, and to worship on the Lord's Day is a confession of faith that Christ is risen, that he is risen indeed. The Lord's Day, Sunday, is the day of resurrection. It's his resurrection that gives us certainty that the probation has been passed. He has secured it for us. The work is finished. Sunday is the day of resurrection, it's the day of Christ's resurrection, and by worshiping on the Lord's Day, the mere fact of gathering on this particular day of the week, by doing this, the church commemorates the great historic event of the work of Christ, which is completed, and also his entrance into that eternal Sabbath by his resurrection from the dead. So worship on Sunday is itself a confession of faith. It is a confession that it is finished. Christ has made purification for our sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a confession of faith that we too will enter that heavenly place of eternal rest through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, raised, and ascended. The Lord's Day reminds us that that's our destiny and it also gives us a foretaste of it. It is a foretaste of it because God calls us into his presence. He summons us before him into his presence to worship him. The Lord's Day also calls us to strive by faith, not by works, but to strive by faith in Christ, to persevere, to endure, to press ahead, so that we also may enter God's heavenly rest. That, friends of God, is the significance of the Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Father, we give praise and glory to you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who has finished the work that you gave him to do and has secured eternal life, resurrection life, glorification, and eternal rest for us in your heavenly temple. Father, we thank you that Christ has achieved this for us and that Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, will bring us into glory. And Father, we pray that we would keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, our forerunner, who has opened the way for us, so that we would not lose heart or grow weary but persevere and strive and move ahead to enter into that rest. And we pray this in Christ's holy name.